do an outreach in Harvard Square. So I just would encourage you to join with the outreach. It's basically the guys get out there and they worship Jesus. Um, and we just befriend the people in the community. We offer them coffee and um, prayer if they desire. So we just are there to be a presence and to be a blessing to the community there in Harvard Square. Um, September 28th through 29th is America for Jesus. For those of you that don't know, it's basically a solemn assembly. There's a sign-up sheet that Jordan has. Um, for anybody that's interested in going, it's in Philadelphia. There'll be a van going down. All are welcome. Um, and then October 4th and October 11th. Basically, in October, we're once again beginning our Bible studies for men and women. So the men are going to be meeting on the 1st and the 3rd, Thursday of the month. And the women are going to be meeting on the 2nd and the 4th Thursdays of the month. So basically, it alternates between men and women. It's 7 to 8.30. Um, there's a sign-up sheet. Basically, you don't, you're not required to sign up, but basically if there's going to be like a change of a location, if the guys desi- decide to meet at Abampe rather than uh, J-Hop, it would just be wise if you put your name and your email or your phone, one or the other, a way to contact you and reach you. Um, that's it really for announcements, uh, but just to continue to pray for a building, which we desperately need for more space so that we're able to grow as a community. So... Um, is there any other announcements that need to be? I don't think so. I think we're, there was one other one. What was it? Oh, the Cambridge Citywide Prayer Service. The last Saturday of September, there's a citywide prayer service uh, for the churches of Cambridge. So anybody that's able to join with that, we would encourage you to do that as well. So I just want to welcome anybody that's here. Obviously, we have returning students that are back in town. I want to welcome anybody that's here for the first time. My name is Bethany Temple, and my husband and I um, direct the House of Prayer here in Cambridge. We're going to um, pass the sign-up sheets. What? I'm going to grab a water. Is Berkeley sleeping? Yeah. <laughs> She's missing her bad lesson today back there. <laughs> hmm? Question, Sarah? Um, okay, is there like a fee for gas or anything for America for Jesus? America for Jesus, depending on oh, the number of people, we are renting a vehicle. Okay. Um, it would be minimal. It, uh, we're hoping it will be like around $20 a person. Okay. Yeah. Good question. Do you pass the offering basket? Yes. Okay. <laughs> What's going on here? Is there any other questions? We're good. Okay, there's finally cool air coming into this room. I know. Does everybody feel it? Yeah. Maybe it's because we're all sitting down, but now it's like circulating. Feels nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, well, we're going to pick up this week. Um, for those of you that have been around, which actually, there's, it's really funny. A lot of our like team that helps like set up, break down, and facilitate and serve on a continual basis are out of town. For the week. <laughs> um, so, like, people that have actually been here for the series that we've been doing. And then, obviously, we have some new faces that are back in town for school. We've been doing the Book of Acts very consistently, studying the Book of Acts. And last week, we actually did Acts. Uh, it was Chapter 21 that we covered. 
uh, which I'm going to review it very briefly. But really, I actually had it on my heart not to stick with Acts this week, which if you know me, I really had it on my heart to get to the book of Acts. Um, but just a very brief, brief message. But it's actually pertaining to the chapter that we studied last week and some things that were stirred in my heart. So basically, background, Acts chapter 21 that we looked at last week, it was basically, it was Paul's final missionary journey, and he was going to Jerusalem. And pretty much on his way to Jerusalem, and this is what we were studying, is the warnings that came to him were basically, don't go to Jerusalem. And basically, everyone was saying, like, friends, and Agabus the prophet was basically saying, if you go there, you're going to be bound and beaten and maybe killed. And basically, we watched over and over, Paul's response basically was, I am prepared to be bound and die if necessary. There was absolutely no concern for his life, no reservation. I mean, obviously, we don't know inwardly what was taking place. Um, the emotions of no one's heart is really revealed. But in the written script, he basically said, I am prepared to be bound and, and die if necessary. But I actually would venture to believe that his heart was truly, truly at peace with it because we looked at other New Testament passages where Paul repeatedly was basically declaring that his life was not his own. He actually professed to live as Christ, to die as gain. That was, his, that was his belief system, that if I live in the flesh, Christ is glorified. He can use me through my body if I live in, but for me to die is actually gain, because I get to be reunited and in perfect fellowship and union with him. So we looked at the life of the Apostle Paul, but what we also looked at in chapter 21 is there was basically a long discourse of his life, and it was basically giving an understanding of his lineage, of he came from the most prestigious roots that he could have taken pride in. It went through his education of who he was trained under. It basically went through, if there was anything for Paul to boast in, that he was the one that had plenty to boast in. I mean, we took an extensive amount of time to look last week even regarding Jewish culture, that on both sides of his family, he was born of Jew, that it was Jewish lineage, there was no Gentile mix. I mean, all throughout, he had everything that he could stand and basically say, I am the most devout amongst Jews, I've been educated and trained under the most astute doctors, over and over and over again, but he basically declared, I boast in nothing but Jesus Christ. He took boast in nothing that he had. So over and over, we were looking at Paul's life and his willingness really to die for the gospel. And one of the things that really struck me about Paul's life is oftentimes when we see gifted, bright, able people give their life even for the ministry, people oftentimes have the mentality of, oh, what a waste. What a waste. Kind of what they could be used to do. What they Can everybody hear my husband? He's doing a very dramatic presentation of the gospel back there. <laughs> It's hilarious. <laughs> um, but basically, that's Paul. I mean, if there was anybody that you would look and think that with all the giftings, the abilities, the talent, the, the line that he came from, that he was destined for greatness. Great in the eyes of man. But yet, he counted his life as nothing, was willing to abandon it, and even die prematurely at a very early age for the sake of the gospel. And see, our, and I know even from the years of being involved with ministry and even from a young, there's often times that if somebody has the skill set to go to law school, to be a doctor, all of those things, that if they choose a life in the ministry, there's that undertone of mentality of, oh, but what a waste. You have such a bright mind. 
Oh, but what a waste, what you could do in government or society and all of that thinking of what a waste. And if that was ever to be spoken or thought of, it could have been thought of the Apostle Paul. But really what strikes me about his life and actually why I want to take some time actually to talk about this element of a wasted life is basically we watch this man, he sows his life into such a place of abandonment to Jesus Christ. The New Testament church is birthed through the Apostle Paul. Three quarters of the New Testament is birthed through and written through the Apostle Paul. We see what actually comes from this man's life. And oftentimes we look and we, we're, we never think about the quality of man that he took no boasting and no confidence in and of himself. He lived for nothing other than Jesus. That's a biblical example really of what we would call... Oh, and I'm, hear me, I'm not saying wasted in a negative sense. I'm saying in a, in a good sense. Because we all, every single person in this room... Every single person in culture, is, there is nobody on the face of the earth that at the end of their days, they have wasted their life on something. We all waste our life on something. It might not even be what's visible to the eyes of man. It could be we waste our time and our energy, our thoughts, our meditations, even emotional energy of trying to get the praise of people and to win someone's approval. For some people, it could be the wrestling their entire life for their father to approve of them. That, that's a life that is wasted upon seeking the approval of their father. It could be any number of things. It could uh, that we actually spend our emotional time and energy and meditation upon. And it's not even necessarily, I mean, you could look at me and think that I waste my life in a certain direction or whatever. It really can't be judged by the sight of the eyes or even the hearing of the ears. It's really the inward place of, there's some people that at the end of the days they've wasted their life on a com computer screen with relationships that they actually could never touch, could never hear, could never experience. It was all at a distance through a computer screen of relating to people and knowing people and aspiring to be something. Some people live their entire life to be fashionable, to seek an outward image that people can think that you know, they've acquired or attained to something. There's, there's countless things. But the extraordinary thing is, how many of you have ever heard about the Moravians from here in Germany? If you've been around here, you've probably heard about them repeatedly. But it, actually, I was able to go to Germany uh, a couple years ago, and this is actually the watchtower in Herrenhut, Germany. And basically, the long and the short of it is, it is um, there was a group of 20-something, like just about 20 to 30 young people. They were all in their 20s. And basically, they gathered together at this watchtower, and their only aim was that two people would pray at all times, and no one worked. This was their theory. No one works unless someone prays. That's exactly. They wanted to see the gospel preached in the nations of the earth, but they knew that it could not happen outside of the place of prayer. So they devoted themselves first and foremost to the place of prayer. For a hundred years, there was unbroken prayer. They never stopped praying. You could never go to this watchtower that there wouldn't be two people. It was two people on every watch. It wasn't like a big, ginormous house of prayer, full band going 24-7. You know, all of the excitement and the momentum that we, as people, like and makes it a lot easier to pray in those environments. Two people. Two people. They'll sing. I mean, they, they sang, but maybe acapella had been there. There was no electricity. <laughs> None of those things. Two people. But you want to know, history actually reveals that it was the greatest missions movement that has ever been birthed in the earth. 
that they touched and evangelized more people, and it's actually recorded that the awakenings in New England and even beyond, that they were the fruit of that praying company. That literally the revivalists that came and preached with such fire here, it was because upon passing on ships on the ocean, they encountered people of such fervent faith and devotion, their heart was struck, and it set them on a journey to seek the Lord in a a completely different way. I mean, their life, just one-on-one encounters with sparking flames of revival wherever they went. So the extraordinary thing is, is there's these two young men, and this is what happened. They actually heard of an island. There was a a particular island where there was a slave owner. And this slave owner literally said, basically, that he would not allow the gospel to be preached. He did not want the preaching of the gospel on his island or his slaves to hear the gospel. So basically, these two young men, they knew that the only way that the gospel would ever reach, and the group of slaves, they they actually say it was under 30 people. He had under 30 slaves. They knew that the, the only way that this group of slaves would ever hear the gospel was if they themselves sold themselves into slavery. They understood that was the, way that the, the only way that the gospel would travel to this remote island. So, mind you, when you sell yourself into slavery, it's not like a one-year deal, like I'll sell myself in and then I'll get out. It, they understood that they basically were signing over their life, the rest of their life. But what they also understood is that there was 30 souls. 30 souls. They understood the value and the integrity of one human life. They understood the jealous heart of God for one human being. See, oftentimes we would gauge the number of people on whether the mission's really worth it, right? If there was a couple hundred or a couple thousand or, a, you know, if you get in a speaking invitation to go somewhere, well, how many people are going to be there? Is it worth my time, really? I mean, that's how we gauge those kind of things versus a group of five people that literally just to pour out your life and to sow into those five people, understanding the importance and the integrity of those individual hearts before Jesus and his jealous heart for them and them alone. So these young men, they sell, sell their lives into slavery. And now this is the picture of a wasted life. You have mothers, you have fathers, you have siblings, you have aunts, you have cousins, you have friends all standing on the shore. And when you read the account of this, of this story... Literally, it says you could hear wailing coming from the shores of mothers weeping, saying, why must you do this? Why are you going? There, and you have to understand, the picture was these were young men full of promise. They could have had wives. They could have had children. They had a bright and hopeful future before them. They could have done anything. They could have gone anywhere. There was any realm of possibility of what they could have done. They could have been the next great revival evangelist leading crusades in the nations of the earth. I mean, who knew what could have come from their life? But instead, what these gentlemen said was there was these souls that they felt like the Spirit of God was compelling them. They sold themselves into slavery. So when the question came, why are you going? Why are you leaving? The weeping and wailing came. All they could hear from the boat as they sailed away from these young missionaries that were being sold into slavery was, oh, that the lamb that was slain would receive the reward of his suffering. Oh, that the lamb that was slain would receive the reward of his suffering. That's what they were living for, and that's what they were dying for. That great life vision that the lamb that was slain would receive the reward of his suffering. It's what would drive an individual of of young promise 
to give and sign over the rest of their life to be a slave. But that's twofold. That's number one, that's a revelation of the worthiness of the lamb. But it's also a revelation of the understanding of the inheritance that he has in each and every single one of us. That he would receive his inheritance of those 30 individuals. That no other way would they hear the gospel. No other way. And see, oftentimes, and that's actually what the testimony says, is that the weeping and lamenting that was coming from the shores, they felt like, you're wasting your life. You're sowing your life into slavery, that there's no promise and there's no hope for you. But ultimately, what I actually want us to look at in Scripture today is what does Jesus deem as a wasted life? And what does he deem as a life that is successful? See, oftentimes what we would define as a wasted life is probably what Jesus would put his stamp of success upon. But the things that we would actually deem as successful could actually be the things that he would place his stamp of wasted upon. See, the value system of heaven is so much different than our value system. So that's basically last week looking at the life of Paul is kind of what provoked me. Has anybody ever uh, read John Piper at all? John Piper. you got to get your hands on John Piper if you haven't. He's, he's basically the individual that coined the phrase uh, that God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. Basically what his writings do, and he actually goes back to Jonathan Edwards with a lot of his writing, is that he basically brings it together. It's not a choice between do I glorify God or do I find a life of satisfaction and happiness. That the two can never be divorced. That he is glorified when we have a life that's satisfied and fulfilled and happy. 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 He's glorified. But the, the counter is true. It's that as we glorify him, that that is where we actually find true happiness and fulfillment. So basically, John Piper actually writes this story. His father was an evangelist, and this is the story that he writes. He says, um, this is a story of a man converted in old age. The church had prayed for this man for decades. He was hard and resistant to the gospel. But this time, for some reason, he showed up when my father was preaching. And at the end of the service, during the hymn, to everyone's amazement, he came and he took my father's hand. They sat down together on the front pew of the church as the people were dismissed. God opened his heart to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he was saved from his sins and given eternal life. But, what, but that did not stop him from sobbing and saying, as the tears ran down his wrinkled face, um, and what impacted and made the most impression upon me is when my father conveyed that through this man's tears, all he kept saying is, I've wasted it. I've wasted it. I've wasted it all. This was the story that gripped me more than all the stories of young people who died in car wrecks before they, they were ever converted. Any story, this story of an old man weeping that he had wasted his life. In those early years, God awakened me, awakened me in a fear and a passion not to waste my life. The thought of coming to my old age and saying through tears, I've wasted it. I've wasted it. It was fearful and a horrible thought to me. What would it mean to waste my life? That was the burning question on my heart. Or more positively, what does it mean to live well? Not, a, not to waste life, but to. How to finish that sentence was the question that began. I was not even sure how to put the question into words, let alone what the answer might be. What was the opposite of not wasting my life? 
Is it a successful career? Is it to be maximally happy? Is it to accomplish something great upon this earth? Is it to find the deepest meaning and significance? Is it to help as many people as possible? Or to serve Christ to the fullness, the fullest? Or is it to glorify God in all I do? Does that mean that my life was not wasted? Or was there a point, a purpose, a focus, an essence to life that would fulfill every one of those dreams? What was life about? What was it for? Why do I exist? Why am I here? Am I here to be happy or to glorify God? Unspoken for years, there was in me this feeling of these two were at odds. Either you glorify God or you pursue happiness. One seemed absolutely right and the other seemed absolutely inevitable. And that is why I was confused and frustrated for so long. This is John Piper. And this, it's kind of what I was just saying about how uh, this, this contradiction that oftentimes we think we're either going to glorify God or we're going to be happy, but we have to choose somehow between the two. But there's a passage in 1 Corinthians. This isn't actually our key text today, so we're not going to turn there. I'm just going to read it to you, and you can look it up on your own later. But um, in 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 17, it, this is where it reads, Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. This is talking about the judgment seat of Christ at the end of all of our lives. And the fire will test each one's work, work of what sort it was. If anyone's work which was built, built in it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself may be saved, yet so as through fire." So what it's speaking of is that basically when the refiner fire, who is Jesus, comes, that our works will be tested. And that which is wood, hay, and stubble will go up in smoke. But that which is of gold and of, sorry, somebody's banging up there. But that which is of uh, gold, silver, and precious stone, that it will endure and it will last. And this really speaks of our life, of what we're building with, of what methods that we build by. Now, as you look at this, basically all of us start to kind of go, okay, am I building my life with wood, hay, and stubble, or precious gold and silver, and, and how do I define which is what? I mean, how do we make that distinction? But the Word of God is extremely clear. There, and the good news for every single one of us in this room is that we can live a life that is not wasted. There's no mystery. It's not like sitting in this room, you're going to walk out and kind of go, okay, so am I one of those people that's going to end up with a wasted life? It's all a matter of choice, and more of it is about an inward vocation than an outward vocation. More of it is about a posture of a heart rather than necessarily our, uh, our choice for job description and those kind of things. The Word of God is very clear that the opposite of wasting your life is living, uh, living life by a single, God-exalting, soul-satisfying passion. So this basically is the passage of Scripture where it says that whatever you do, do with all your might unto the Lord. The well-lived life must be God-exalting and soul-satisfying because that is why God created us. Most of you, I'm sure, are extremely familiar with the passage Matthew 22:37, which is basically where the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Okay, pause. The question is, what is the greatest commandment? 
He could have said anything at this point. I mean, anything. So we need to pay extreme attention to what he says is the greatest commandment. And it's so simple. It really is so, so simple. And if we get this one, if we get this deal, the rest of it actually just comes as an overflow and as a byproduct. Many people look at, like, the Word of God and they go, this is overwhelming, this is a lot, I can't grip it all, it's complex, you know, all of that stuff. But honestly, when Jesus defined the greatest, the greatest commandment, if you get that, if you pursue that, you get it all. You'll lack nothing. The rest of it actually will come as a byproduct. So there's no complexity. The word of God in the gospel is so ridiculously simple. So simple that my three-year-old son can understand it. And he's beginning to. <laughs> but really, this is what, how Jesus responded. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your strength. That's what he said. He said, love the Lord your God. But key word here, I'm just going to say this. Key word is, he said all. This is the key passage. Key. This is like Christianity 101, as simple as it gets. But to be honest, as simple as it gets is as profound as it gets. Because when he said all, he was not suggesting, he was not offering you an option. What he was doing is right here, he is giving you the key to life and happiness. If you're looking for the key to life and happiness, it's in this word of all, with all your heart. And what that means is pursue wholeheartedness. That instead of living with a divided heart, instead of living with a double heart, instead of living even in confusion and almost torn between two worlds and two desires and all of that, if you actually say, God, I don't love you with all my heart, but I want to. I'm going to, I'm gonna, the great pursuit of my life. This is the great pursuit. It's not what I'll be or what I'll become or what my title will be, whether I'll be the next governor of Massachusetts. Who knows? <laughs> But the great pursuit of my life is that with all my heart, I love you. With my whole being. And see, this is why, even what we're talking about, a wasted life, that me as a mom, you know, there's many places where I could think, where I can't sell myself into slavery and go on a mission field like, you know, the Moravians did. I, I, I'm stuck here cooking three meals a day. <laughs> I mean, I'm just going to say this right here, straight up. You want to talk about what feels like a waste of life when you cook three meals a day? I mean, you people devour it, and then it ends up in the toilet. It's a waste. It's just an absolute waste. I have to clean it. I have to cook it. Then I do it all over again in another hour. Like, come on. The monotony of it is just mind-numbing. I mean, I, you know, I sit at my house going, I was not born to do this. I think Daryl must have, like, a cooking anointing we haven't discovered yet because this is just retarded. I mean, it's, I'll just say this. This was not my great life ambition to cook three meals a day. I mean, and I'm just going to say this straight up. For those of you that are like, wait a minute. Where are the babies? you got to feed those people. <laughs> and it's on you. Because brother is only going to eat cereal if you don't cook for him. Okay? <laughs> so there's marriage, 101. <laughs> and I love every inch of it. I wouldn't choose another life. I would do it all over again. <laughs> but. How about a wasted life in the kitchen? <laughs> but I'm going to say this to you. I guarantee you. <laughs> sorry. I can see all the people wiping their eyes with tears. I'm like, it's my son. You can hear me. Um, I'm going to say this, though. 
I live my life saying, while I peel onions, while I peel potatoes, I will have a heart that's alive and a fire within. I will live before God and not before man. And I'm going to tell you something right now. I don't care if you're a gardener the rest of your life. If no one sees you, no one knows your name, you look insignificant. Your life will be far more significant if you live from the posture of the place of prayer, of communing with God. You can actually hold more influence in the earthen realm through the place of prayer than legislators and senators and governors do. Because there's a place in the spirit realm that is reserved for people that commune in fellowship with God. See, oftentimes we look at prestigious titles and things like that and we think that they're influential. It's limited. It's God that holds all power and authority. It, it says that God holds the hearts of kings in his hand. So do you realize that by partnering with the heart of God in the place of prayer, you have influence over kings in the place of intercession? You pray into their dream life of what they'll encounter and hearing from God. I mean, there is a place of influence that only comes by friendship with God and comes no other way. So never define your life by what your title is, whether you did or you didn't finish your degree. None of those things mark a life that makes a difference. Because there's plenty of folk that have titles and they have things hanging on their, on their wall, but their life is having no lasting impact. It's counted as wasted. Before the judgment seat of Christ, it'll just go up in flames. But then there's those that it looks in the eyes of man like there is nothing significant about them. But when they stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the Lord is going to count their life as a success. Because number one, they live with a heart filled with love and passion for Jesus Christ. And second to that, those were the moms that were doing VBS for all the street kids. And those kids heard the gospel because of that one woman's obedience. Those are the people that are sowing in the secret place and walking out obedience and love for Jesus just in the day-to-day -day when no one's praising, no one's acknowledging, but they are doing the acts and the service and the ministry of the gospel where they are. But the same is true. If the Lord has called you to be a doctor, you get your doctorate, you be the best gosh darn doctor you could ever be, Live with a heart that is alive before Jesus, and he is going to use your life to influence and impact multitudes. But we don't define our life whether it's successful or whether it's wasted by our outward posture. We define it by our inward posture. And that's actually how Jesus defines it in this place, is love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's saying live with a heart that is alive in love. I love the fact that he commands it. He does not su suggest it. We're going to look very quickly um, at two examples biblically of basically what man counted as wasted. How many of you guys know the story of Mary of Bethany? One of my favorite stories, not because she was from the town of Bethany, not at all. Just like the story. <laughs> um, for those of you that aren't familiar with it, I actually just want to have you turn to Mark chapter 14, verse 3 through 9. Because it is a powerful story. So this is the same Mary of Bethany that when Jesus had come, it was actually spoken of that Martha was in the kitchen cooking and doing all of her busyness. And Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, basically just listening to him. It says she was literally sitting at his feet listening to his words. Just listening to his words. 
And so basically Mary comes out, and is, I'm sorry, Martha comes out, and is like, can you get her to tell, help me, like do something, do something productive with your life, please, other than sitting there listening to Jesus? And basically Jesus, he vindicates her, and he says she's chosen the good part, and it won't be taken from her. Like, crazy, let's just say. I mean, I do have a little bit, like, I would love to be the Mary, like, sitting on his feet, but I have a little bit of a hard time with the whole, the whole thing because at the end of the day, someone's going to be in the kitchen or no one's going to eat, right? Right? Nobody would have ate at that silly little dinner party if Martha wasn't in the kitchen. But really what Jesus was doing is he was addressing the posture of her heart. Because she was criticizing and thinking that somehow the one sitting on his feet listening to his word wasn't being productive or being active or as effective or useful maybe, what he was doing is vindicating and saying she's chosen the good part and it's not going to be taken from her. Um, but this is actually a second story about Mary. This is the same Mary. In verse 3 it says, And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as, as he, being Jesus, sat at the table, table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spicker. What you guys need to understand, if this is studied out accurately, basically Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they're sisters and brothers. It's three in the family. Their parents are deceased. Mary, this is her inheritance that she received for her to live off of for the rest of her life. This is her life's inheritance that she received. And during those times, it does say very costly. So this is her inheritance that was received. It says she broke the flask and poured it out on his head. So here, the, the chick takes her costly, fragrant oil, she breaks it, and she pours it out on his, on his head. And the response then is then, but then there were some who in, were indignant among them, saying, why was this fragrant oil wasted? Wasted. It was wasted. For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii, and given to the poor, so righteous. And they criticized her sharply, but Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done good, good for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whatever you wish you may go to them, but, but me you do not always have. She has done what she, what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, this is profound. I want you to hear this. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever... The, this gospel is preached in the whole world. This, what this woman has done will be a memorial to her. Basically, what we have here is in the eyes of man, what they said was wasted, what looked worthless. Like she just poured out, honestly, in American society, what most of us are working for is financial security. That's what we're going for, right? We want, we want a secure future for our family. We want to build something so we can one day get married and start a family. And when we do get, all of those things, it's all working toward financial security. So Mary actually had what probably what every single one of us in this room want, a financially secure future. She had it. And what she actually said was it was more noble and it was right for her to pour out even her security for her financial future at the feet of Jesus in worship and adoration and preparing him for his burial. And see, in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of these individuals, it was wasted. It was pointless. That was ridiculous. I mean, honestly, I guarantee if you have a life savings 
and you decided to pour it into something, whether it be missions or whatever it may be, if anybody knew what you were doing, you'd have a whole heck of a lot of people saying, that was stupid. What is your future going to hold if you just gave thousands upon thousands away? If five grand was all you had to your name, and you wrote out that check for five grand. Most of us would live with the panic of, oh my gosh, will I ever be able to build it up again? What am I going to do with my family? She poured it all out at the feet of Jesus. But this is the extraordinary thing. Jesus vindicates her. Not only does he vindicate her, he says that her story will be a memorial and will be preached in the nations of the earth, wherever the gospel goes, the story of Mary and her extravagant devotion. See, this is, this is a, the prime example of what, in the eyes of man, looks wasted actually has value. And you know what it is? It's the heart posture. She had such extravagant love. And maybe it was foolish. I mean, who knows? I don't know. But you know what? In the, in the place of extravagant love, we do extraordinary things. We no longer count the cost of what does it mean for me and what is that? All of those things. It's simply that there is no cost because we want to pour everything we have out and abandon. So this was Mary. And then we actually have another story of wasted, as far as this parable is actually speaking of a wasted life, of a life of possibility and potential. And in Matthew 15, verse uh, 14 through Matthew 15? I'm so sorry. <laughs> Is anybody there going, wait one second, there's no story of the parable? It's Matthew 25. <laughs> I just turned to Matthew 15 and went, hold on, it's Matthew 25. Sorry. Okay. So here we have it. Most of you are familiar with it. So it says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man to one he gave two talents, and to another he gave one talent. He gives these guys five, two, and one. Basically what happens is the master goes away, and when he returns, the guy with five talents basically says, I have the five you gave me, and I was wise and I was faithful, and I actually have five extra, totaling ten. He doubled his talents. And then we actually find Jesus' response here. Um, likewise, hold on, in 21, this is a response. He says, his Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And then we find the guy with two talents. Basically, he comes to the master and he says, I have the two you gave me, and it was multiplied, and I have two more. So now there's four totaling, and Jesus gives the same response, or I'm sorry, the Lord gives the same response here. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. So then you have the guy that has one talent. He comes and he basically says, I know you're a hard taskmaster, that you reap where you have not sown. I was afraid, and so I buried this thing. 
and I have it back to give to you. I got my one talent. I didn't lose it. Isn't that cool? I still got it. And basically, this is, this is the response here. It says, so take the talent from him. This is verse 28. And give it to him who has the talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he, who, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. For those of you that are familiar with the passage of Scripture, this is actually very similar to Daniel uh, chapter 2, verse 21, where it says, To he that has understanding, understanding will be given. And to he that has wisdom, I'm sorry, to he that has wisdom, wisdom will be given. And to he that has understanding, knowledge will be given. And it's a crazy thing, because when you read that passage of Scripture, it's the same as this. This is saying, to he that has, more is going to be given to him. And to he that doesn't have, even what he has is going to be taken from him. I mean, when you read that parable, you're just like, wait a second, if he's God, then he doesn't need more. And what the dumb God, he does need something. This is just not fair, this is not just. But in Matthew, it's spoken, I mean, I'm sorry, in Daniel 2.21, it's spoken again. It's the same understanding. It's saying, to, the, to he that is wise, more understanding is going to be given. And literally what that means, it's the same as the parable here, is that those that actually took what they had and they stewarded it rightly, that they said, okay, you gave me five, and I'm going to be faithful, and I'm going to be wise. I'm going to take what you've given, and it will be multiplied. But, so, and it's actually the same in Daniel. It's saying to those that are wise, that if they show that they have wisdom in heeding the word of the Lord, that they don't take the word of the Lord lightly, that when I speak, that they respond and they treasure my word, he's saying, then I can speak more. Then I can give more. It's basically saying that if he gives you revelation of something, if you show that you treasure it, that you honor it, that you reverence it, he can go, I can entrust you with more. To he that has, more is going to be given to you. But what he's actually saying is to the one that the talent was given, that he was not faithful and he was not wise, he's basically saying, you weren't a good steward. You didn't take what I gave you and multiply it. You actually did not see the worth and the value of what I put in front of you. So you know what? You're not trustworthy. I'm going to take it from you. I mean, this seems extremely harsh, but the redeeming quality is that he says, you're still going to enter the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> I actually love that part. Because <laughs> when you read it, you're like, this is horrifying. This is scary. The fear of the Lord. Just like, But he says, you're still going to enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, It's not going to be taken from you. But it's this place of understanding, and it's the same thing. Is this actually, this talent parable, it speaks of lives that are wasted. That you've been entrusted with gifts, with talents, with anointings, with abilities, and that what God wants to do is he actually wants to multiply you and increase you. That basically, we, he doesn't want us to stand back at the end of our day saying our life was wasted. That I gave you ability and even potential. But instead of cultivating an increase, you actually stood idle and you stood not honoring or even, or honoring, yeah, basically honoring what was entrusted to you. So this is, once again, speaking of this place of it's wasted opportunity, it's a squandered life. It speaks of that squandered time is squandered destiny. That our time is our most valuable, valuable. Time is more powerful than even money. What we do with our time will determine our destiny and our future. And that's actually what this passage of scripture speaks of. 
is this place of understanding the value and not squandering what the Lord has given to us. I want to close out really with this point here because I think it speaks to a lot of us as far as this place of wholeheartedness and understanding the heart of God. For many people, this is not meaning the call to wholeheartedness and to worship the Lord. This not, obviously does not sound like an act of love. They do not feel loved when they are told that God created them for his glory. I mean, honestly, I can remember as a young child, when my mom, I, I actually said this to my mother one time, I was like, isn't it weird that we're commanded to worship the Lord? Like, isn't that kind of like very egotistical of the Lord? Like, isn't it like he's so egocentric that like everyone has to worship him? I mean, I remember saying that as a 12-year-old child, thinking, that's just odd. Like, you know, but I love, love, love this explanation. This is why I'm reading it to you. They do not feel loved when they are told that God created them for his glory. They feel used. This, this understandable, understandable, given the way that love has been completely distorted in our culture. For most people, to be loved is to be made much of. That's what we think. If someone loves me, they're going to make a big deal about me. They're going to make me the center of everything that they do and think. And That's what we think love is, that somehow, that they're going to make much of us. Almost everything in our Western culture serves to distort love. We are taught in a thousand ways that love means increasing one's self-esteem. Love is helping someone feel good about themselves. Love is giving someone a mirror and helping them like what they see in that mirror. This is not what the Bible says or communicates about the love of God. Love is doing what is best for someone. I mean, that's the way we need to define love. It is doing what is best for someone, even if you won't win the popularity contest in doing but, make, uh, but ma- uh, making self the object of our highest affection is not best for us. I'm going to reread that to you. Making self, making ourselves the object of our highest affection is not best for us. It is, in fact, a lethal distraction. We were made to see and savor God. And, and in savoring him, to be supremely satisfied and thus thus spread all throughout the world the worth of his presence. What this is speaking is that because God loves us, he knows that if the focus is all on ourself and consumed with our life and our being and, and holding up mirrors of uh, constantly gazing upon ourselves, that we actually will never be fulfilled and never be satisfied. But it's loving when he actually calls us to glorify him because he's actually saying, this is where you're going to find joy. When you get your eyes off yourself. I actually love John Piper. He uses the analogy that basically if you go to like the Alpine Mountains or even, um, what's that big canyon? You know, Grand Canyon. There you go. Like anything, (laughs) anything that's like amazing in nature, that to go there, you don't stand there looking and gazing going, I am magnificent. (laughs) I'm wondrous. I'm just splendid in all my... Or you also don't go there and lock yourself in a room staring at mirrors. You go there to behold something beyond yourself. Bigger than yourself. When you go, you get perspective, don't you? I mean, all of life comes into order and there's a place of awe and wonder that there is a life beyond me. That's freeing right there. When you really come to that recognition in the place of worship or understanding of God... That the life beyond ourselves, it's liberating. 
We live in such a greater place of freedom. It's when we're constantly focused on self, our own happiness, our own acquirements, on what we're going to be, what we're going to do, all, all of those things, that that is the place of bondage and dissatisfaction. And you go deeper and deeper into a hole of yourself because you were created for more. You were created to worship and to behold God. Um, so basically, Piper goes on to, in this passage right here, he defines actually the, the true understanding of love. He goes on in greater detail and speaks actually about how harmful it is the more we encourage people to focus upon themselves. But the greatest act of love you can do is to point somebody to worship the man Jesus Christ. And in that, you are giving them the greatest gift that you could ever give them. I actually love this quote when I was in high school. Um, I heard it, and it just struck my heart, and it really speaks to what we're addressing today. It says, only one life, it soon will pass. Only what is done for Christ will last. And hear me, once again, I'm not saying everybody needs to join the ministry, because that's for Christ. And somehow when we work in secular society, that that's not. It's in every sector of society, whether you're called to write, whether you're called to film and media, the places that we so desperately need voices of righteousness and truth. Absolutely in those places. But that with everything we are and with everything we have, it is unto Christ and for his glory. And it's from that place of seeking to be wholehearted, to love him with all that we are and all that we have. I want to just really close out with a, an encouragement to every single person in this place. September is kind of like obviously here, September 1, the whole city moves. It's like the whole city is in gridlock, moving September 1 around here. But really, I know for me, aside from Cambridge or like the school calendar, for some reason, September is always a very transitional time for me. I don't know what it is with seasons or every dramatic job change happened in my life in September. Like, everything happened in September. I shouldn't say that. I got married in July. And I have a baby in May. But, <laughs> but a lot happens in September. But really, what I want to encourage us is to take a, a period of time, even this week, to assess these, these things as far as our life being wasted or even counted as successful before the Lord. And what deems it as that, that it would not be measured by the eyes of man or the value system of man. But I would encourage you to take a few minutes, write down, what are the priorities of your life? Like beyond natural things, of, and it, actually let's include them, the priorities of your life. If it's a priority to be physically fit this upcoming year, go ahead and put that down. If it's a priority, if you say it is a value system of mine that I want to know the word of God, that's important to me. If it's a value system and something that is deeply, deeply important to you, that you cultivate deep and genuine relationships, I mean, whatever it may be that you feel like this is, I encourage you, the five top priorities. It could be just to get through school. Like, you could just simply say, I need to get through these classes. I have some really intense, put that there. I mean, whatever it may be, put your five priorities. But also specifically, what I want you to look at is basically what measures are you taking to achieve them. If you're saying, I want to know the word of God, really sit down and assess what measures are you taking in your life to know the word of God. Are you doing anything to know the word of God? If you're saying, I really want to know the voice of God, that's important to me. It's important to me to hear the voice of God. The question then becomes, Look at your life and your priorities and your time. Are you making any time or space for what you say is priority? Relationships, if you say, I desperately want to cultivate, I am a person that needs and thrives in relationship. So if you're saying, relationship is important to me, really sit down and look and assess, 
if, if you are making time and priority for relationship, and if you're not, if, whatever those things are, if you are aligning your life rightly, yay, gold star for you. But nine times out of ten, there's things in our life that we say are a priority and we say are important or that we value. But if we look at our schedule throughout the week or what we're giving time to, there's many lesser things that are distracting us from what we say is our priority. So I would encourage you to take time even this week. Write down the five things that are a priority to you. Write down what measures you're taking to accomplish those things and to see that they could be dreams that God's placed in your heart. It could be something as long-term as you know that one day you want to open an orphanage. Are you doing anything right now to simply even make connections in the areas of caring for orphans? Are you doing anything right now even to pray? Begin in the place of prayer, to pray for orphans. What I'm saying to you is the dreams and the visions, the passions that God has placed in your heart, which I believe first and foremost, and all of us, he's awakened a desire to know him, a longing to know him. What I'm saying to you is those things that God has placed inside of us, dreams, and that's the place that we're satisfied is when we're fulfilling, living in the light of his countenance and doing what he's created us to do. And really, how is our life lining up with that? Make a list of what you do spend your time on. Put down the five top things that take, take up your time. I mean, be honest. Like, if it's social is number one, if it's work, if it's school, put it in the, in the place of priority. What is taking up your time? I mean, really be honest, because if it's television an hour or two a night, and that's actually robbing you from genuine relationship, or robbing you from prayer or the word, or you say you want to go to the gym, but you never go because you're spending that hour on the internet, look at those, say, what am I honestly, the top five things that I'm placing, put, spending my time on? And is, it, is there anything that you're giving your time to that is taking you away from cultivating what you say is priority in your desire? So I encourage you to do this, and I encourage you to do it in, in, from the perspective of these places that we've talked about, of a life that is not wasted. That honestly, forget the end of our life. Forget, forget when we're 80, and we stand before the judgment seat of Christ that we don't want to say, my life is wasted. What if every single day at the end of our day, we've said before the Lord, God, I don't want to live a life that's wasted. And before you today, was my life wasted? Or was it successful? Not in what you accomplished. I mean, honestly, there's some days I don't accomplish a heck of a lot that doesn't look like I did a lot of work, like for the ministry or for our family, but I knew that I actually carved out that hour that I needed to sit before him, and I had more sanity and more peace of mind, more clarity, and probably even more creativity moving forward. <laughs> All of those things. So I actually know the Lord said successful. That was a good day in his book. Maybe nobody else's. My house might have been a wreck. But successful in, in his eyes because I actually ordered my life of what I say is a priority. And I would encourage all of us as you head into the school year, don't allow distractions and the many things that kind of want to pull on us to even take us away from what we say is priority and what we say is important to us. That we would live before him, that before his eyes, and even we could honestly with integrity and strength say, I feel as though I sowed my life in wisdom. I sowed my day in wisdom. That we would guard that which we feel like the Lord has entrusted to us. Why don't we stand to our feet? Um, I'm going to pray for us corporately, but if there's anybody that specifically wants prayer as you're starting kind of a new semester, new school year, I know there's a lot of transition for some of us. We just want to make sure that we pray for you individually before you leave if there is anybody that wants prayer.
God, we come before you, Lord, tonight, and God, we ask, Lord, that even as we read the story of that elderly man, God, just weeping that he had wasted his life, just looking back upon the years of his life and and feeling as if that it was not sown in a way that glorified or honored or that he was truly alive from the inside out. God, we ask today, Father, Lord, that not just at the end of our years, but Lord, at the end of our day, at the end of our week, and at the end of our month, God, that we could stand knowing that our heart is alive in love before you. God, that we have sown rightly before you. God, we recognize today, God, that all of us will waste time and energy in places. And God, we say, Lord, we want to be like Mary of Bethany, God. Lord, that truly what the world might say was wasted. Lord, that you actually could vindicate and justify. Lord, that you could praise, Lord, that you found glory and honor in it, Lord. So, God, we ask, Lord, even right now, God, that we would not live our lives by the value system of this earth. Lord, that we would not deem what is successful or wasted, Lord, according to the culture, Lord, of this society. But, God, that we would live by the value system of heaven. God, we say, Lord, we want to fulfill, God, every dream and every desire and every purpose. God, that you have sown into our hearts and lives. God, we want to be a people of fulfilled destiny, Lord, not wasted potential. So, God, we ask, Lord, even now, God, would you stir our hearts, Lord, with, Lord, even the value, Lord, of time and talent, Lord, of sowing rightly before you, of sowing our lives before you, Father. Lord, awaken love inside of us. Lord, awaken devotion, Father. Lord, we worship you, Lord, this night. God, we want to love you with all that we are and all that we have. We bless you. If there's anybody that needs specific prayer for a specific need, we just want to make sure we pray for you before you go, but you're dismissed. There'll be some worship, Will.
strongly encourage just relationship. That oftentimes in the place of being encouraged in our dreams and to pursue the Lord, that the Lord can use people and through relationships. So, you know, whatever school you're at, either find a small group there or join one of the small groups here. But just I really encourage relationships that will fuel you and encourage you in the direction of your dreams and your heart. So bless you. Have a great week. Bye. very hot in here. It is. It doesn't help that I wore a scarf. <laughs> that was fall, right? September. For, for a little bit there. For a minute. For a few years. It's like, like one or two days. He, I said to him, it's hot in here. It doesn't help that I wore a scarf. And he said, it's hot as fall. And he goes, well, for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> for, for a few days. It is outside. It's hot. I think it's a number of people. And it's hot. Right. Yeah. You are too cute. What's your name? Jeremiah. Jeremiah. How old are you? Three? Oh, three years old.